Welcome to the Auditorium, a portal to the fringes of culture. Hello and welcome to the Auditorium. I'm your host, Dr. David Bramwell, and my co-host... Mr. David Mountfield. Mr. Just David, Mr. Mr. David Mountfield. B.A. Ons. So, we've got something occultish, something a little devilish, a little surprising and strange for you. We've got a talk on the Hand of Glory. Do you know, did you know what the Hand of Glory was before you heard this talk? Yes, I did. And do you know why? Yes. Good. So moving on. No, I didn't. No, go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's mainly because of the collection of occult in Brighton, which claims to have a Hand of Glory within it. Which it doesn't. Oh, is that a lie? It, it is a lie because <laughs> oh, right. I have been to see what is the only place in the UK which has a genuine Hand of Glory, and that is the museum in Whitby. Our speaker is is Tim Pilcher. He's better known in the UK as an expert and editor of comic books. He's written several books himself with particular focus on... Filth. Uh, the history of sex comics. He's, and he's a great speaker as well. He's spoken at the Catalyst Club in Brighton many times. Over a hundred times, isn't it? Yeah, I think he's the, he wins the record for, yep. for having spoken the most. He's gone off-piste a little bit with this topic, which is with the Hand of Glory. Part of the reason for this was because I collaborated with Tim... Rather, rather, I was one of several collaborators on a on a graphic novel which came out in 2014 in Brighton, called Brighton the Graphic Novel, which is self-explanatory. <laughs> yeah. I hope. And the the Hand of Glory was was a story that I collaborated with a, a cartoon a, a cartoon. I shouldn't say that. An illustrator. Ooh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Save yourself there. And uh, and in, in fact, at the end of this podcast, we're going to be we're going to be reading that. I thought that was fact when I read it actually. So if it sounds like really convincing, that's because I believed it. Oh well, it's 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 partly res- it's part fact, part fiction. Oh, faction. So let's introduce Tim Pilcher on the occult talisman known as the Hand of Glory. Open lock to the dead man's knock. Fly bolt and bar and band. Nor move nor swerve, joint muscle or nerve, at the spell of the dead man's hand. So. That was written by a chap called Richard Harris Barnum, who is better known as Thomas Ingoldsby's uh, Legends, which is a book written in 1837, which was talking about all the strange folklore that was happening around England at the time. And this was a part of a story he wrote called The Hand of Glory, The Nurse's Story. Now, the Hand of Glory is, a, is an occult talisman. It was a tool for thieves. I'll just give you another little bit from the same story, The Nurse's Story. Sleep all who sleep, wake all who wake, but be as dead for the dead man's sake. Now lock nor bolt nor bar avails, nor stout oak panel thick studded with nails, heavy and harsh with hinges creak, though they'd been oiled in the course of the week. The door opens wide as wide may be, and there they stand, that merciless band, lit by the light of the glorious hand, by one, two, three. So you've probably got an idea of what this hand of glory actually is. So it's a hand, obviously, but it was uh, used by burglars to gain entry into properties. How do you get a hand of glory? Where do they actually come from? There's a lot of different ways about how that's done. It comes from a hanged man. Some people say it should be the left hand, which is associated with evil, or the right hand. If the person's been hanged for murder, then it should always be the hand that did the deed. 
That's the, that, the hand you want. That's the, kind of the crucial part. In Sabine Baring Gould's 1873 book, The Curious Myths of the Middle Ages, she actually explains how you make a hand of glory. It goes, wrap the hand in a piece of winding sheet, drawing it tight as to squeeze out the little blood which may remain. Then place in an earthenware vessel with saltpetre, salt and long pepper, all carefully and thoroughly powdered. Let it remain a fortnight in this pickle until it is well dried. Then expose it to the sun in dog days until it is completely parched. Or, if the sun not be powerful enough, dry it in an oven heated with vervain and fern. Next, make a candle with the fat of a hung man. So it's really, it's kind of a good idea just to get the whole body because you're going to need to render all the fat off of him later to make the actual candle as well. Um, and uh, Lapland sesame. Observe the use of this herb. The hand of glory is used to hold this handle when it is lighted. Now, actually, we're, we're going to see kind of several variations on what a hand of glory looks like. Some of them say that the hand of glory actually holds the candle that's lit. You'll see some that actually have the hand with the tapers on the end of each finger, and you have to light all the tapers. Or some that have a, a candle on the back of the, the, the hand. So they're, they're kind of variations in design and, and, and setup. So an 1823 book went into it a little bit more detail. They said that the hand need to be pickled in salt and the urine of a man, a woman, a dog, a horse and a mare. That's kind of a lot of piss to kind of gather up. Um, smoked with herbs and hay for a month, hung on an oak tree for three nights running, then laid at a crossroads, then hung on a church door for one night while the maker keeps watch in the porch. And if that be, no fear hath driven you from that porch, then the hand be true one, and it be yours. So, so it's a lot of work to actually get one of these kind of talismans together. You've got to kind of, you know, do this kind of stuff. They're also kind of known as, uh, you know, the dead man's candles. So what does a hand of glory actually do? What's the purpose of one? Well, you know, they, they were sort of described throughout literature. Sir Walter Scott mentions it in The Antiquary, one of his books, and uh, one of the late poets, Robert Southey, put it in an 1809 poem called Thalba the Destroyer. He also describes how to make one, which is, from this wallet he drew a human hand, shriveled and dry and black, and fitting as he spake a taper in his hold. Pursued, a murderer on this stake had died. I drove the vulture from his limbs and lopped the hand that did the murder, drew up the tendon strings to close the grasp, and in the sun and wind, parched it, nine weeks exposed. The taper, but not there to place in part, nor hast thou undergone the rites that fit thee to partake the mystery. Look, it burns clear, but with the air around, the dead ingredients mingle deathliness. So... The idea of what you would light this candle that was in this dead man's hand or, or was part of the dead man's hand is apparently it was supposed to burst locks, shatter stones, reveal secret treasures hidden inside mountains. This is a kind of an incantation that thieves would say as they were going in, as they lit the candles. Let those who rest more deeply sleep. Let those awake their vigils keep. O hand of glory, shed thy light. Direct us to our spoil tonight. 
Flash out thy blaze, O skeleton hand, and guide the feet of our trusty band. So the idea is you would light this candle where anyone who is asleep in the building would be put into a kind of a deep coma and they would be completely knocked out. And it would allow thieves access into the property and just to steal what they like without being disturbed. It rendered the people speechless. And there was a kind of a warning. If you tried lighting it and say one of the fingers or the tapers didn't light, that meant either that someone couldn't be put under the charm or there was someone still awake within the household. Once it was lit, the only way that you could put it out would be to douse it with blood or skimmed milk. I, don't, I still don't know why that was. They're very particular on skimmed milk for some reason. Of course, you know, with all of these sorts of things, people are knowing that, oh, God, there's this talisman out there. We don't want to get robbed, you know. So there was people out there sort of offering counter charms or counter spells. And one of these was to take uh, an ointment and smear it all around the thresholds, which was a combination of the blood of screech owls, the fat of white hens, or the bowel of black cats. Probably the only sort of way it would work is if they just kind of slipped the burglars up as they were coming in, so it smear it around them. Now, I was always trying to work out where the name, the Hand of Glory, came from, where it actually its roots and origins from. And its roots came from another root, mandrake. The mandrake, uh, kind of like a mythical root that was used in a lot of alchemy and, and herbology uh, in the Middle Ages. It was thought that the root looked like a man, hence the title, and if you pulled it up, its piercing cry would kill you. But the interesting thing about that is its real name is, uh, or its Latin name is, Mandragoria officinarum. Now, what's interesting about this plant is it contains a lot of alkaloid toxins, including scopopomine and madragorine, which has been used as an anaesthetic since uh, ancient times and chewing the root can actually put the person into quite a, a deep stupor almost like a coma-like situation now also the the root is mythologically renowned to be tied in with people being hung it's supposed to grow underneath gallows and so where there is a hung person the seed or the feces that comes out when someone is is hung is supposed to kind of drip onto the ground and that would magically create a, a mandrake plant growing there. So you can see how this kind of mythology kind of developed from a, a plant that actually existed to uh, a talisman that was supposedly had very similar properties that would, you know, wipe people, you know, put people to sleep. Obviously, it being an occult talisman, it was related to or associated a lot with witchcraft. There was a couple of incidences in 1588, a couple of German women, Nichelle and Bessers, who were accused of witchcraft and exhuming corpses. They admitted poisoning helpless people after lighting hands of glory to knock them out. And a chap called John Flan, who sadly was severely tortured in 1590 in Scotland, confessed to using a hand of glory to break into a church and, and consort with the devil. Though, considering he'd been tortured, he'd probably say anything at that time. The idea that these hands of glory actually really worked was pretty ingrained in folklore and culture right up to like the mid-1800s. It was, it was very much believed that a hand of glory was a, a prize for a good burglar to have, something that could really help him out. But the hand of glory does really exist. Now, you can go to the Austin uh, Museum of Strange in Texas, and you'll find one there, 
But a little closer to home is Whitby. Whitby Museum has a mummified severed hand, which was discovered in a thatched cottage in the wall in Castleton by a stonemason and a local historian, Joseph Ford. And it was donated to the museum in like 1935. So, I mean, it's interesting that it's very ingrained within folklore and culture, but it's not something that really people talk about a lot. I mean, one of the, the interesting things, it's not just within British culture. Around the world, they have things like in the Netherlands, you have thieves' feet or hand or a finger. And in Poland, they had a thing called the finger of sin, which uh, was... A, well, uh, <laughs> Yeah, let's not go there. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then in Germany, they had thieves' thumbs, which were smaller lights. And what, one of the more disturbing aspects was that, that these were actually made from innocence. And of course, the only innocents there, there were were unborn children. So if there was a, a dead uh, a thief who'd been hung, a female thief who was pregnant, they would remove the, the baby and, and then make a, a light out of that. And on, on that cheery note... <laughs> I'm going to leave it. That is the hand of glory. Thank you. Tim Pilcher there with a fascinating talk really? on, on the hand of glory. Yes. I mean, what's a, it has to be said that, you know, that's a lot of effort to go to, isn't it, for something that probably didn't work. Definitely. Well, you know, well, I mean, I, I mean no, I'm not guessing, you know, there's no, obviously no scientific studies done on it, but it's extraordinary the lengths that people would go to to... Uh, to have a sort of useless thing for robbing houses. Well, with. That, yeah, that's the thing because if you take something like voodoo and yes. and voodoo dolls and voodoo charms and amulets, they work in terms of in the same way that a placebo works, nah. or so we're led to believe. So that if you can convince someone sufficiently that this right. is going to have a good or a bad effect on them, or the shaman's role is the same, isn't it? Yeah. Then you can make a difference because so it's, it's, you're giving them that edge, the psychological right. advantage. But, but with right. this. Yeah. If the idea is that the occupants of the house don't know that you're entering and you yeah. are attempting to render them unconscious, then no, you can't You can't play with their will because they don't know. So yeah. exactly, unless there was something that was actually put into the uh, into the candles too. But then it would make the person holding it fall asleep. Yeah, no. There, there, so there is, there is there's a, no it, science there. But it's interesting, the power, we're talking about the power of relics, etc. and so forth. Let's go somewhere more personal. In my personal experience, I... I was touring in the Welsh borders many years ago and uh, my landlady in Ludlow had a lot of strange things about the house. She had a series of 14 or 15 animal skulls in ascending size upon the wall. I thought, that's a curious decoration, even for Ludlow. And I said, well, what's that about? And she said, oh, I'm a witch, it's all right, I'm a witch. And I said, OK, but still and all, what's that about? She said, oh, well, that's warding off a hex, that's warding off a curse. I said, OK. Okay, what so animal skulls can do that? Said, yeah, yeah, they can do that. That's fine. Also, in the fridge, you'll see some little packets of of sort of bloody stuff. Don't eat them. Or go near them. I said, why not? He said, because they're afterbirth. They're used in our ceremonies. They're very holy stuff afterbirth. Well, that reminds me of one of my favourite books, A Disease of Language, by Alan Moore, the comic book writer. This is one of his lesser-known pieces of work, but I absolutely love it. It's two monologues transcribed. And one of them is about the birth call. And I didn't know what a birth call was until I'd read this story. Yeah. Do you know what it is? Well, it's, it's some people are born with a kind of a call of skin over their face, aren't they? Yeah. And if they are, they're said to have second sight. Is that right? I don't know about that. I believe so. And I I think especially if it happens to the seventh son of a seventh son, if they're born with a birth call, you know, they're tip-top. But do you know who they were sold to? Accountants. <laughs> no, I'm not they sure. They were sold to fishermen. What? They were sold to fishermen. The idea was that if a fisherman owned a birth call, yes. he would die in his own bed. 
to save him from drowning at sea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was, it was meant to bring good luck to the fishermen. And the, right. the other one that springs to mind, of course, is closer to home, much, much closer to home. In Brighton, mm-hmm. we have a beach, one of the best beaches in the UK for, do you know what? Nudity. We, for nudity, you'd see. But apart from that... Uh, pebbles. We've got an excellent beach for pebbles. What kind of pebbles? Brown and grey ones. Yeah. Uh, We've got... Brighton beaches are one of the best places to find hagstones. Hagstones are stones... With a hole in the middle. With a hole all the way through. And they were hung... Do you know? No, I don't, but tell I'm, me. I'm, I've gone into questionnaire mode with you tonight. Yeah, I, like, I know. Do you know this? What's the answer? <laughs> Why don't I'll you know this? Go on, tell me. So the hagstone was hung for several reasons. It was hung on the mantelpiece to ward off bad luck and burglars. Right. It was also hung above the bedpost to give one sweet dreams. Mostly it was used to stop horse theft. So you, you I can hung see it, that. I can you, see that. Yeah, and, and it would um, be perfect for that. Yes, um, yeah. Interestingly, the same stone has a different denotation in Hastings because uh, Alistair Crowley ended his days there. He did, but was uh, cremated in Brighton. And he was he? Oh, yeah. there's, there's an item of pride. And he cursed the town. He was kicked out for bad behaviour generally. And he threw his drugs on the streets and said the town will be cursed and the youth will be cursed and no one shall leave unless they hold a stone with a hole in it and a piece of the old town wall and no one will be able to escape the pull of Hastings. And they still believe that to this day. If you talk to the locals, I used to run a comedy night there, but there was nothing funny going on. Uh, so, um, of course, the irony is, do you know what the drug is that he was taking? And heroin. It was heroin. But it bum, was, bum, bum. Yeah. Which is a drug that is very Hastings popular become, to this day. Well, yeah, most associated with yeah. it. The biggest problem is, is heroin in Hastings. Um, we're going to wrap up, though. We're going to do something a little bit different for this podcast. Yes. We're going to read a story about the Hand of Glory. Now, this this is partly how this whole thing came together, was that I collaborated, I was one of many collaborators on a book called Brighton the Graphic Novel, which Tim uh, Pilcher, our speaker, edited. And several writers and illustrators were asked to contribute a story, and then they would team up with an illustrator. And I had researched some of the history of Brighton and Brighton hangings and that, and I knew a little bit about the Hand of Glory and I put all of these together into a, a story which is, let's say, 60% based on truth. Right. And we're going to... So which is the truth bit, the, 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 the stuff about... The true bit is that there was a fountain in Brighton and... and, <laughs> and That's it. <laughs> uh, and that we used to have a river. Uh, the rest is spurious. No, it's not. It's, it's, I'd say it's... Well, it's, it's Actually, we shouldn't say it, should we? That, that's up for the listener to find out, isn't it? Absolutely. So here it is, the first time on Auditorium, a reading of The Hand of Glory. Glory. The year is 1846. A crowd, jostling and expectant, waits in the old steam... It is market day, always a busy time in fashionable Brighton, but today there is something special. A man is about to die by hanging. Of those present, it's only the hangman, Arnold Quinn, who knows that this is the last time that a life will be taken on this ground. Change is coming. Development. Gentrification. The stones and statues of the Victoria Fountain will replace the gibbet and the noose. Before long, Parliament's Capital Punishment Amendment Act will put an end to this bloodthirsty spectator sport. All right, son, test the ties now. You make sure they're strong. Quinn's boy Eric is with him, nervous and wide-eyed, as his father shows him the ropes. I don't like everyone watching, Dad. 
He whispers as he hands his father the freshly coiled noose. Don't you worry, boy. Quinn nods reassuringly to the child. He's not here to see you, son. We've always done hangings on market day, son. Draws the crowd, you see. Hangings are good for business, but you know what? This is going to be the last time. Eric shuffles to his father's side. The mob is unsettling him. He finds their faces mean and frightening. He wants to take his dad's hand, but he doesn't dare. I want you here, boy. Quinn drawls, looking over the forest of grimy pates that stretches out before them. I want you to be proud of me before they take all this away, and we have to hang them behind the prison doors. Here he comes, boy. Quinn slips his hand on top of Eric's head and directs his gaze towards a scrum that is forming in the crowd. And the folk has given him his deserts. Them and we work together, see? They are the voice of justice, and I am its hand. What did the man do, Dad? Battered his boss to death, Quinn said, gripping the boy's shoulder with calloused fingers. His name is Owen Parsons, and he did commit murder. And for that, he is going to be the last man to hang in Brighton's old steam. The boy edges back again, wanting to find shelter behind his father's broad flanks. But Owens won't allow him. Killed a man for money, he did. Bastard deserves it. Quinn's son isn't sure whether the last words, spat out in venom, are meant for the condemned man or his murdered boss. Rotten fruit and worse fly at Parsons as he approaches the gallows. All right, you've got to keep back now, but watch me, said Quinn to his son. The lad stares at the condemned man as he stands, head bowed and lost. Quinn moves forward. See how I do it, son, Quinn shouts as he reaches the man's side. The thing, son, is to get it over with as quickly as possible and keep a good distance when he drops. The buggers always piss and shit themselves. He reaches up above Parson's head. The crowd falls silent. The rope's in his hand. The young Eric, for the first time, watches his father go about his work. later, black clouds broil overhead and the first notes of thunder sound upon the horizon. The crowd have left, fearful of a soaking, but the body that swings in the quickening wind is not alone. Two figures attend it, one tiny, a lantern glimmering in its hand, the other tall and broad, a knife glints in his hand as it reaches up above the corpse's head. There is a movement and the body tumbles to the ground. Then the pair stoop together, going about their business. Hold the light still, boy, Quinn snaps. He rolls back a sleeve and reveals a greyed wrist. We shouldn't be doing this, Dad, the boy whines. We need the money, Quinn snaps back, and there ain't gonna be no more hangings out in public, Eric. We won't get at the body so easy from now. We gotta make our coin while we can. 
Eric shudders and looks away as his father pushes the knife through flesh and bone. We're done, Quinn says as he wraps his prize in a rag. You go home and be with your ma. On my own? The boy asks. On your own, yes, Quinn replies with a hard smile. You've done a day's work. Makes you a man. Get yourself home and tell ma'am there'll be food for the table by the morning. The boy looks up at the black skies and shudders. Go on, Quinn snaps. There's rain coming. All right, Pa. The boy edges away slowly, and Quinn gives him a shove. Not hard, not cruelly, but enough to force the boy into motion. And don't go down by the river, not with the storm coming, he shouts at the boy's retreating back. She'll bust her banks, but his words are lost in the breaking of the clouds. Quinn has been here before many a time to this bar with these men. This time, though, it's different. This time, he needs something from them. He steals his nerves and approaches a table. The four sit together, faces lean and sculpted by lives of fear and threats. Evening, gentlemen, he begins, but his voice fails him when four pairs of beaded eyes turn on him. What are you doing here, Quinn? asks the first, a ratty, feral creature. Looking for rope to hang us with? I've got something for you, says Quinn. Piss off with you. We want nothing of yours, hangman, sneers the rat-faced man. But the second of the group reaches out a placatory hand and pulls his snarling friend back. Hold your tongue, weasel, he drawls. What you got for us, hangman? Quinn draws the oilskin from under his coat. Something that once belonged to your colleague, Mr. Parsons, he tells them. He of the stretched neck and the grasping hands. And he drops the bag into their midst. You filth! Weasel spits and rocks back in disdain as the others lean in and begin to unpeel the cloth. Quinn has done this before. He knows that he has what they want. A genuine hand of glory, gentlemen. Light it up and your victims will sleep for days. Handy, if to take a purely hypothetical situation, you was burgling their houses. <laughs> there is laughter, and Quinn warms to his task. Not easy to come by these days, gentlemen. And not cheap, either. As you know, the magic only works if the hand is freshly cut from a hanged man. Or from the body of an innocent. But you won't find many of those in this town. Filth nonsense, Weasel spits. You're a cheating neck cracker. You ain't got no magic. Shut up, Weasel, the third of the crook snaps. You're drunk and you lost your money on cards. Now get out of here. Weasel slinks angrily to the door, leaving the others to haggle over their price. Before the night is done, coins have changed purses, and the hand has passed to another. The 
The storm bellows as Quinn strides home along the course of the Wellborn River, his pockets laden with coin. He follows its sodden path through the town from the seafront to the London Road. Earlier that night, another had walked that path, but he had never reached his home. The storm waters had flooded and surged out, catching the child and sweeping him away. The body was carried, spinning and eddying down, to be deposited by the gallows at the old steam. There it lay, lashed by the rains, until a figure, swaying with grog, found it and dropped to his knees at the child's side. Look at this, then, he said. Dead and so young, he said. Such innocence on that face, he said. And the hangman said there were no innocents left in this town. And he laughs and draws a blade from his coat. And the weasel starts cutting. <laughs> Eric Quinn's body was recovered after the storm had abated. But his hands were never found. Something in the Water was written by David Bramwell and Lance Dan. It was read by Alan Gilchrist and produced by Lance Dan. The Auditorium is presented by Dr. David Bramwell and Mr. David Mountfield. The producers are Lance Dan and Andrew Mayling. You can discover more about the show at oddpodcast.com, where you can find out about upcoming events and festival shows. If you'd like to give a talk about something that you're passionate about, then email us at contact at oddpodcast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at oddpodcastuk. Talks from the Auditorium are featured in Earnest Journal, a magazine for the curious and adventurous. If you like the Auditorium, then please leave a review for us on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs>